The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Doctor's Lounge. You're listening to Dr. Scott Barber on America's Web Radio. It's good to be with you guys today. We've got a lot to talk about. On this show, we are always discussing the virtues of free market patient-centered healthcare, and I'm always trying to warn you guys about the dangers of a one-size-fits-all government-run socialized medical system. And for my entire career in medicine, we have been steadily moving down the road towards socialized medicine. And sadly, we are a lot closer to socialized medicine than most people think with the passage of the Obamacare laws essentially outlawing health insurance. Yes, you heard me right, outlawing health insurance, because essentially what happened was the government came in and told the few insurance companies that we have what it is they have to cover, so we no longer have specialized plans like a high-deductible catastrophic-type plan or a plan that has uh, more bells and whistles to it. It's a one-size-fits-all system uh, where the government mandates what procedures and what coverage that an insurance company has to provide for for their insurees. And so there's no real ability for us to get plans that are unique to our situation. For example, when I was young and healthy and, and didn't really have a lot of risk for needing medical care, I wanted a... a um, a cheap plan that just covered catastrophic things. So if, God forbid, I were to catch cancer or get hit by a bus, I was covered. Those plans are gone away today. Now you have to get the Obamacare plan, and whether you're a healthy 20-year-old just out of college or whether you're the father of a family of 10, uh, you get the same care. Now what they ch- what they did differently was they were very Machiavellian in the way they c- created these systems so that if – uh, you're essentially a wealthier person. You have a very expensive plan. So for me to buy my health insurance, it's incredibly expensive, and I spend tens of thousands of dollars a year before I even access the system. And what they did was they identified people that are relatively poor and less able to afford high premiums, and they gave them cheaper uh, premiums. But the sneaky thing they did was they created a situation where they have very high deductibles so that if somebody with less means, they have that card in their pocket because the cost of the premium is being offset onto people who can afford it, which is why their premiums are so high. Then when that person uh, goes to access the system, they can't afford the deductible to get their surgery. You know, they go and they, they need a certain kind of procedure or a surgical procedure and they're required to pay 5000 or $10,000 out of pocket and they don't have it. And the end effect of that is that they don't get to access the system. And then it's a win-win for those administering the government-run health care because they are able to charge these massive premiums, these massive deductibles. And in the end, they oftentimes don't have to provide the medical care uh, because the patients can't afford it. And this is kind of the dirty little secret about how they do this shell game. The other thing that's dangerous about this third-party payer system that we have and this government control where kind of government uses other people's money to pay is they disconnect the consumer from the goods and services that they're pur- purchasing. So everything is always sort of buried in, in your coverage. And I think a lot of us have had the experience where 
you know, we went to the emergency room and we said, gosh, I was there for, you know, I got stitches and the bill was like $30,000. Now my, my part of it was only, uh, $600, but man, the bill was like 30,000 and you think to yourself, it's a good thing I didn't have to pay it. Well, you are paying it. They just disconnect you from the point of service payment so that you don't feel that $30,000 that you pay. But we are paying $30,000 for those services. They just don't let you see it at that time. They keep it a secret by the way they do these premiums and deductibles and the way they displace uh, the cost to the people who can afford it and a little bit off the people who can't afford it. And you might say, well, what's the bad thing about that? I mean, if we, that's kind of the whole point of having a compassionate society is we take the cost from people who can't afford it and we put it on people who can't afford it. In the end, everybody gets health care. No, that's not what happens. What they do is they displace the cost onto the people with the money. But they don't give you the care. The care goes away and people are unable to get basic care. And as time goes on and as the bureaucracy of health care increases, your services go down till pretty soon you get nothing. And all you need to do is look at the National Health Service in Britain where the wait times are just forever. And it's this rationing where they just don't ever have to give any care. Uh, that is creating a horrible situation. People have basic needs for joint replacements. They can't get them. They have uh, cancer treatment they need treatment for. They don't get it, and instead they die waiting in line. And it's just a really a terrible situation. Um, there's other corruption that goes on. The government, through control of our health care, is able to manipulate our behavior, and we saw this with COVID. They mandated uh, a certain kind of treatment, vaccines and masks, uh, we still see in the hospital, despite the fact that uh, every mask study shows no effectiveness of masks, the hospitals are still requiring masks. Every time I go to do a procedure that I have to put in a mask when I walk in, everybody knows this doesn't work. The CDC has admitted that this doesn't work. It's part of their, uh, their recommendations now that masks are ineffective. Uh, and yet we're still doing it. And the answer is the question is, why are they still doing it if they know better? And the reason is money. By implementing these COVID policies, they're able to extract more money out of the government, which subsidizes Medicare and Medicaid at these hospital systems. And it's just like the teachers unions uh, and uh, and government where they they get taxpayer money and then they just pass it on to the politicians uh, who support these policies for expanded government uh, control of healthcare and it's just back and forth with the money. The, the taxpayer money goes to the teachers unions. The teachers unions then give it to the politicians who keep voting for policies, which give the teachers unions more power and more taxpayer money. And those of us on the outside looking in going, Hey, my kid's not getting a, an education. They're not learning anything. And the things that you are teaching them, I totally disagree with. Uh, yeah, we're going to sick the FBI on you, uh, and, and shut you up. So we're in a bad situation. And if you don't believe me, I'm going to try and connect some dots for you. Uh, let's start off, uh, David, let's play, uh, number six. You're okay. You're not going to, you're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. Hey folks, guess you heard this morning I tested positive for COVID. And when people are vaccinated, they can feel safe that they are not going to get infected. Dr. Fauci says he has COVID again. If you've done the right thing and gotten vaccinated, you deserve the freedom to be safe from COVID-19. And this morning, I learned I 
I tested positive for COVID-19 as well. The three doses that you'll be prevented, not just from serious illness, but from getting this virus, this Omicron variant, and therefore giving it to others. Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews is in quarantine for seven days after testing positive to COVID. So I, I'm fully vaccinated. It gives me some comfort. Anthony Albanese has just tested positive for coronavirus. Uh, having received two doses of AstraZeneca, it's a very effective vaccine protection from symptomatic illness and therefore risk of transmission to others. So what you just listened to was a montage of all the so-called experts and people in power, presidents, uh, Biden, you heard in there, all telling us how if you take the vaccine, then you can't get COVID. And of course, we all know that that was uh, a mistaken uh, statement at best. Uh, I think uh, that's a sort of a charitable view on it. But the reality is they they uh, told us that if you get the vaccine, you can't get sick. And they said that based on no science whatsoever. And, you know, we all know that when people like me tried to point out, well, wait a second, historically, we don't do very well with these vaccines against these respiratory illnesses for a variety of reasons intrinsic to the viruses and the way they behave that it, you know, for one thing, it doesn't seem very likely uh, to me that uh, we would be able to come up with a successful virus. But when I said it, I was censored. Um, I was reported to the board. Of course, we all know my famous <clears throat> article uh, the day the Atlanta Braves won the World Series on the weekend. The front page of the paper had me up there uh, being accused of spreading misinformation. And <laughs> hilariously, absolutely everything we said on this show turned out to be 100% right. And I'm always joking with folks about this. Was it because I graduated at the top of my class and I'm a brilliant doctor? Maybe that played a little bit into it, but I think it was more that it was just basic science and basic understanding of medicine. Um, and uh, I basically just put two and two together and was able to observe what was going on with my eyes, as many doctors did. But for some reason, because of the way our system of healthcare has played out where this concerted effort to drive doctors out of business, out of private practice, so that they would have to be co employed by the hospital systems and therefore controlled uh, by the hospital systems has been incredibly effective. And now um, we're seeing things with the uh, medical boards that um, are quite frightening. There's this wet blanket on free speech. There's this wet blanket on open and honest discussion about science. There's always these terms now about misinformation and hate speech and uh, these euphemisms that are just tools to get people to um, to shut their mouths and and to basically justify removing any dissent from the marketplace of ideas. And it's a really scary situation because what happens is we get the wrong we get the wrong treatment and the wrong prescription for what ails us. And it's not just in healthcare, but healthcare is such a major part of our society. It's 20% of our economy that the control of our healthcare is a very powerful thing. And so what happens is we end up with these unelected bureaucrats that have massive control over our lives. And when things go wrong, there's no accountability uh, and if you don't believe me, let's play cut number eight, David. I didn't shut down anything. I recommended to the president that we shut the country down. 
Okay, so what I just played for you right there was Anthony Fauci. Now that things have gone bad, now that we've had catastrophic results from these unscientific lockdowns, from these mask mandates, uh, our children being out of school, having all sorts of issues with drug abuse, depression, um, health issues, uh, the learning, uh, the, the fact that all of our kids are way, way behind schedule because of this two-year shutdown, and the people who perpetrated this crime against us, like Anthony Fauci, are trying to argue that they didn't have anything to do with it. I didn't shut down anything. Uh, and then we just play the, the montage with him saying, I recommended to the president that he shut things down. We all know, of course, that's exactly what happened, that this unelected bureaucrat who's been in power forever, who's one of the highest paid bureaucrats in Washington, uh, was drunk with power, exercising over it, uh, exercising his power over us. And when people like me, and there were a lot of people like me, tried to say things, we were attacked, we were censored, we had articles written against us, and basically everything in the book was thrown at us to try and get us to shut our traps. And, you know, one of the things that uh, we noted early on, again, I don't know if it's because I graduated at the top of my medical school class and I'm just a brilliant doctor, that is true. However, um, a lot of this stuff... Is just basic science, and I'm just looking at an article here. And for all the people who want to censor me and report me to the board and bring me uh, bring me to trial, I'm simply reporting on a peer-reviewed article that uh, was published in uh, <clears throat> in the journal Curious C U R E U S, and uh, it's basically. By Kerr and Baldy and Lobo, uh, and it basically demonstrated the regular use of ivermectin as prophylaxis for COVID-19 led up to a 92% reduction in COVID-19 mortality rate in a dose-response manner. The results of a prospective observational study of a strictly controlled population of 88,012 subjects. So this is... This is what we call in science a piece of the puzzle. This is uh, an article that was published in a peer-reviewed journal that seems to show that ivermectin uh, was effective at um, decreasing COVID-19 mortality. Now, if we were to bring these up uh, several months ago or a year ago, you risked being attacked by the boards, uh, your medical boards, uh, by your uh, medical licensing agencies, and so doctors, rather than face these obstacles or face this persecution, sort of kept their mouth shut. Well, what did that do for patients? What did that do for people out there that were trying to navigate uh, this uh, so-called deadly pandemic? It was a really uh, difficult time. And, you know, I, I don't – my purpose of this show, the, per, the reason that I take time out of my day to come and do this and t is two things. One, it's cathartic for me to sort of vent about what I'm seeing with my own eyes. But I'm also trying to sound the alarm that when you cede control over something as important as your health care over to other people, thinking that they're going to look out for you, they aren't. That is just a fact. The FDA does not look out for you. The CDC does not look out for you. Your medical boards that are supposedly supposed to keep uh, doctors on track and to make sure that you're getting uh, proper care, 
They just don't do it. The only thing that will that will monitor the quality of the goods and services that you receive is the free market. The free market always knows, and the beauty of the free market is that it's a voluntary relationship between buyer and seller. And over time, markets always figure out what's good and what's bad, and people can use the free market to figure out what types of of goods and services or medical treatment in this case uh, that they want. Now, one of the things that's happening in society right now that is incredibly dangerous is this idea that individuals cannot uh, make comments or have thoughts about anything that they don't have some sort of degree in. And I don't really understand this. When I was in medical school, I used to be trained that if I ever have a patient, and actually I have this situation right now, if you ever have a patient with a serious medical condition, to be prepared for that patient and that patient's family to understand the disease process better than you do as a physician because it's their life. They're motivated. They're into it. They've been doing it for a long time. And as a physician, you know, I deal with what I deal with every day, but there are things that are a little bit off the beaten path. Uh, that, you know, are not, I know about from medical school, but I don't have all the information at the tip of my mind. And so being aware of that is good when you talk to people, because if you go and you talk to a patient with a serious medical condition and you act like Mr. Know-it-all or Mrs. Know-it-all, and the, you know, the patient knows more than you about it, you could look like a fool and you lose their trust. And that's not something we want to do. And so, um, we see people now, uh, we saw it with Katanji Brown Jackson as she was uh, being confirmed for the United States Supreme Court. Uh, she was asked uh, by one of the senators, I'm blanking on who it was, Marsha Blackburn, I think, asked her, uh, what is a woman? And she says, well, I can't, I can't tell you what a woman is. I'm not a biologist. Uh, I can't believe in my lifetime that we literally have a person sitting for the highest court in the land uh, – with immense power over 360 million people uh, who's telling me I can't define a woman because I'm not a biologist. This is utterly ridiculous. We had Josh Hawley. We've played it on this show before, uh, and I'm not sure. Actually, let's play it. Let's do cut number five. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks to all of the witnesses for being here. Uh, before, uh, I, I want to visit with you, Ms. Maskey, but before I, 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 I do, I just want to clear one thing up. Professor Bridges, you said several times, you've used a phrase, I want to make sure I understand what you mean by it. You've referred to people with a capacity for pregnancy. Would that be women? Many women, cis women, have the capacity for pregnancy. Many cis women do not have the capacity for pregnancy. Um, there are also trans men who are capable of pregnancy, as well as non-binary people who are capable of pregnancy. So this isn't really a women's rights issue. It's a, it's, We can it's recognize a that this impacts women while also recognizing that it impacts other groups. Those things are not mutually exclusive, Senator Hawley. Oh, so your view is, is that the core of this, this right then is about what? So um, I want to recognize that your line of questioning um, is transphobic, um, and it opens up trans people to violence by not recognizing that. Wow, you're saying that I'm opening up people to violence by asking whether or not women are the folks who can have pregnancies? So I'm one, I want to note that one out of five transgender uh, persons have 
attempted suicide. So I think it's important. Because of my line of questioning? Because. So we can't talk about it? Because denying that trans people exist and pretending not to know that they exist. I'm denying that dangerous. trans people exist by asking are you? you if you're talking are you? about women are you? having pregnancies. Do you believe that the, uh, men can get pregnant? No, I don't think women can get <laughs> so. You are denying that trans people exist, like and that leads to violence. Is this how you run your classroom? Are students allowed to question you, Absolutely. or are they also treated like this, where no, 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 they're, they're told that to they're at opening up people to oh, violence? We have a good time in my class. You should join. Oh, I bet. You might learn a lot. Wow, I, I would learn a lot. I've learned a lot I just know. in this exchange. Absolutely extraordinary. Okay, so that is a great clip. There's a lot to unpack there. Sometimes I wonder if I'm an anachronism in this world. That is utterly insane to me, and it's scary, and it should scare you, because this woman is not just some random woman off the street. She's a law professor at uh, UC Berkeley, a law professor, and she does a lot of things here that are scary. Number one, junk science. So this idea that men can become women and be pregnant is, it's ridiculous. No, it's ridiculous. And I think a lot of what ails this country is the fact that because of the way bullying has taken place in this country and this cancel culture and all this, people are absolutely terrified to say basic truths. And so we get just a crazy group of people that are just altering the way that things are done in this country. And as a result, we have inflation that's, that's, you know, record inflation. And it's because people can't understand it when the government keeps spending and printing money that we don't have that you lead to inflation. So these people who are trying to argue that men have women uh, or sorry, that men can have babies, they're not able to deal with the fact that inflation is out of control. Um, we got a, a government that openly says we're going to put coal out of business. We're going to put fossil fuels out of business. We're going to ban fossil fuels by 2035. There's not going to be any cars on the road that aren't electric. They're openly strangling the supply of fuel. And now energy costs are through the roof. And they're telling us, Oh, no, no, no. It's none of our policies. It's not this fact that we stopped drilling in Anwar. It has nothing to do with that. It's all the war in Ukraine and it's, uh, you know, somebody else's fault. It's not me. It's just utterly insane. And then the worst part is this idea that anybody who asks questions about something is creating hate speech. You see the way she says, not only is what you're arguing, um, not true, but you're you're violent. You're being mean. You're you need to be silenced because your speech is hate speech. And this is getting all too common with the people that control us. And that's what I'm trying to show here is that we've lost control over our own lives. We're losing control over our government that goes through this profligate spending that we have no say in. I mean, I don't know if a lot of you are like me, but I look at them. They The, the Congress convenes. Oh, we need to spend another $2 trillion on something random. And I'm sitting here going, uh, we don't have $2 trillion. And who's who's accounting that? Like, who's paying attention to who gets that money? And then every time we read about some boondoggle or, you know, some crazy situation uh, where, where money kind of disappears or, you know, a politician gives it to a relative or to a friend's business or something like that, the Solyndra uh, debacle, uh, you know, people just kind of shrug their shoulders and move on. But this has real world consequences for our children. And I got young kids 
that are in school that are just getting ready to enter this world. And I'm terrified about the world that we're handing off to them. And we can't fix problems if we can't be allowed to talk about problems. And, you know, one of the other things that that makes me sad is, um, you know, I send my kids to private school and I want them to, you know, I want them to be educated. Um, I want them to understand that they are the best. You know, my father used to tell me this all the time. The greatest gift I ever got in this world was number one was my health. The second gift I got was being born in the United States of America, the greatest country, the greatest society that ever existed, that even with all its pockmarks. And I think we know what those are because the left won't let us won't let us live one second of our lives without throwing everything negative about us uh, in our face, despite the fact that it's when you compare it to the rest of the world, we're far superior. This is the greatest country in the world, and it is predicated on the Constitution, which enshrines our rights and puts limitations on our government. And we slowly see them um, overstepping their bounds and they use tools to subvert our constitutional protections. And one of the tools they use is medicine. And they use that. This is a very powerful tool. Everybody was terrified of a pandemic. Uh, and so we very readily surrendered our freedom. We all agreed to have our children, which even with all the censorship, and again, for all of you who want to report me to the board, I'm reporting facts that there are people who are having negative side effects from these vaccines. It's a fact. And it is a risk-benefit analysis. And when you look at the statistics put out by the CDC – your children, your school-aged children's chance of being harmed by the COVID is less than influenza. And so whether or not to vaccinate children, uh, your own kids, is a risk-benefit analysis. Now, I haven't made a statement one way or the other. What I'm saying is it's a risk-benefit analysis. And you think I'm lying. Let's play cut number seven. So, Dr. McCullough, some people say, well, kids drop dead all the time of, of heart issues. I mean, you've been in this field for decades. You're a cardiologist. Is that true? It's not true. We have data by Avolio and colleagues from Finland. Before the COVID-19 vaccines, there were four cases per myocard- for myocarditis per million. It can happen with a parvovirus or another uh, virus. Four per million. The current estimates are now from a, a prospective cohort study from Bangkok, China, Thailand, 25,000 cases per million, 25,000 cases per million. Yes, Charlie, it's through the roof. Myocarditis at this point in time is due to the COVID-19 vaccines until proven otherwise. So, Dr. Okay, did you hear what Dr. Peter McCullough said? Now, listen, here's another thing. So, Dr. Peter McCullough has been banned from social media. He's had his uh, medical licenses revoked, I think. Um, he's been persecuted every step of the way. And before the pandemic, he was one of the most published cardiologists on planet Earth, uh, a brilliant guy. He was an Ivy League professor, I want to say Yale. Um, the guy had an impeccable record, still has an impeccable record. But he started saying things that are obvious. We had four children per million with myocarditis, and now we got 25,000 uh, these kids um, coming down with severe myocarditis. Now, a rational person would say, hey, I have a question. 
I have a question about this. Uh, and then what happens is when you have a question about it, like I was posing over the last two years, uh, I get a full page article written about me in the AJC trying to slander me and lying about everything I said and, and basically just using, uh, um, you know, police state tactics to silence my opinions. And here I am telling you data, facts and data. It was four, uh, four cases per million of myocarditis before the, the, uh, vaccine was released. And now we're releasing this vaccine on our children. And now it's up to 25,000 cases per million. That is significant. And all I'm saying is it warrants looking into. It's worthy of a question. It's worthy of doctors getting together and having a discussion about this. But instead, what happens is we silence Peter McCullough. We take away all of his credentials, which in the world I live in makes me even more like, wait a second. Now I really want to hear what he has to say. Why do the powers that be want to silence this guy? Now, the other thing that happens with this government run healthcare system is they, that people lose their ability to make their own decisions and doctors lose their ability to be um, be advocates for their patients because they're employed by a hospital system and they're controlled by medical boards. And these medical boards do not seem to have the uh, best interests of the people at heart. And I will tell you right now that uh, we've talked about it on this show, Matt Walsh, uh, over at the Daily Wire has been doing a lot of great work exposing these transgender uh, procedures that are being por- performed on prepubescent kids. Now, listen, when a ch- there there's a thing called a hermaphrodite. So when you go through development, um, you know, you have uh, female parts that are being developed and you get exposed to testosterone and it causes the female parts to turn into the male parts. And so sometimes that process can get screwed up and you have somebody who's developmentally in between. I'm not talking about those people. I am talking about people who are fully formed boys or fully formed girls, biologically boys and girls. So a boy, an XY chromosome with fully formed functioning parts or a girl who's an XX chromosome with fully formed functional parts who goes through stages in life, which is not uncommon, where uh, a boy uh, maybe has some effeminate qualities, likes to play with dolls, even may think they're a girl, or vice versa, where you got a girl that feels like they're a boy. Now, these types of problems are problems, and most of them resolve. And there is no scientific data to show that if you cut off the private parts of a biologic boy and turn them into the girl, that you resolve these psychological issues that make them depressed or suicidal. In fact, the data that I'm aware of uh, shows that it makes things worse. Now, again, for all the people who want to censor me and report me to the board and write future articles about me, all I'm saying is I want to have a discussion about this. But that's not what's happening. What's happening are these medical boards are permitting these institutions to perform mutilating operations on prepubescent kids before we fully understand the data. And as far as I'm concerned, in my opinion, that is just pure evil, pure evil, mutilating these kids, cutting off their private parts uh, because they're having a psychological issue. And if you think I'm lying, um, let's go to... 
Let's try number two. Cut number two. D.C. for providing gender-affirming, again, so-called, hysterectomies. Yes, to children. How old is your patient? 16. Okay, all right, so they're in the clear. Okay, so so they do, so they would do it um, for, at the, for that age? Yes. Okay, great. Is it a common procedure that you guys do for for that age? Yes, um, we have um, all different type of age groups that comes in for that. For the gender, for the hysterectomy. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Just out of curiosity, do you know like what's the youngest age you would do it on? I'm not sure, but I have seen younger kids. All right. What you heard right there was uh, one of the people from Libs of TikTok calling up an academic institution. I forget what the name of this one was, but it's happening at Vanderbilt University uh, and uh, other major institutions. I believe Yale University as well, University of California, San Francisco, these gender uh, clinics where they are uh, – not only doing these gender mutilating surgeries, which you just heard, you just heard a libs of TikTok person calling up pretending to have a daughter that she wanted to bring in um, to to get gender affirming surgery, which is basically a euphemism for cutting off the private parts of a young kid. And you have the person on the phone saying, oh, yeah, we do that. Oh, we do it on younger people. Now, Matt Walsh over at the Daily Wire has uh focused a lot on this and the libs of TikTok, this this audio uh, went viral. And as a result of this, uh, this attention, Vanderbilt University apparently has shut down uh, their their transgender surgeries for now. I believe Tennessee has now passed legislation at least making the surgical mutilation um, illegal. I want to say Florida just passed something and a lot of other states are looking into this. And I would say if this stuff was so scientifically proven, which it is not, um, why are they changing course now? Uh, all we did was shine light. All people are doing is shining light and asking questions, and it's changing behavior. Now, if they felt so uh, correct in their analysis that what they were doing was scientifically appropriate, it seems to me that they wouldn't be shutting down these operations. But the fact is they are. And the scary thing to me is I don't understand how my medical boards will permit something like that. And I don't recall as a medical community having any discussions about this stuff. But mentioning that vaccines might have a risk-benefit uh, consideration for individuals, uh, particularly when considering giving your children that have – of a lower risk of contracting COVID-19 and having a serious complication from it than they do from influenza. I just showed you statistical analysis of this myocarditis issue that is a major deal. Now, I posted an article from JAMA, Journal of American Medical Association, which is uh, considered a major medical journal. Um, I would consider it one of the tops. Uh, I don't anymore. I mean, I don't consider any of these medical journey journals necessarily honest and truthful because we know for a fact that they're willing to publish fake data. We saw the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet publish fake studies on hydroxychloroquine to try and get us to to stop using it. So if those two journals will do it, 
you know, there's no telling what these others. But at the time I published or published I, at the time I posted this article on social media, uh, JAMA, I thought, was a top medical journal. And I'm sure most um, most people with the medical establishment still consider the journal American Medical Association a, a major uh, a journal. I posted this article on social media with no comment. It was just on myocarditis, and I was I was uh, suspended for six days, and I was not allowed back on unless I pulled it down. Now, this wet blanket on free speech, the silencing, the discussion of anything under the guise of hate speech and under the guise of of uh, misinformation is just crazy to me. And the, the one thing I want to open everybody's eyes to is – there is no arbiter of free speech. There's nobody out there who's like, hey, I'm the person who knows what truth is and what truth isn't. And so the only way for the marketplace of ideas to understand what the truth is for is for us to hear all the marketplace of ideas. And I'm sorry, when it comes down to science, open discussion is the only way to move forward. I love sharing the story of Joseph Listor who is the uh, father of uh, modern sanitary technique and surgery. And, you know, the fact that when he was <clears throat> demonstrating massive reduction in post-operative infections by using aseptic technique, uh, it took more than a decade for him to convince the medical community because of all the natural human uh, personality traits that don't want to accept the new thing. And this guy was coming along and, telling other people in medicine, hey, there's this new way to do surgery and it's kind of a pain in the in the butt. It it takes time and effort and and it's not the way you're used to doing it. And they didn't want to do it because that's what human beings do. They resist change. And it took him a long, long time to get aseptic technique adopted by the rest of the medical community. And now of course it seems utterly ridiculous that anybody uh, would refuse uh, refuse aseptic technique. It seems like such an obvious thing. But the lesson is we must have an open mind for uh, for scientific ideas and don't let these totalitarian police state government entities that always have an agenda that is not in our best interest tell us what we can and can't listen to. And, um, you know, the other thing is when we have these silos of these medical boards that are really designed to keep doctors in, in check, I used to think it was in order to make sure that the doctors out there were, were um, competent and were doing the right thing. And now I know that's not the case. You know, when I've been practicing now 20 years, and my test for competency is the patients that I see every single day. Uh, and, you know, if I don't do them right, they the market will get me. I will get a reputation as being a terrible doctor and, you know, people will sue me for malpractice, all these sorts of things. So I'm under the gun every day, as is every doctor. And the idea that these medical boards are able to uh, to keep us on the straight and narrow, it's just a fallacy. It's not happening. It's not true. And, you know, during the during the covid uh, epidemic, when the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet came out with these fake phony studies on hydroxychloroquine, where was the FDA or the CDC or the World, World Health Organization to correct the record? They were nowhere. They were part of the issue trying to get government uh, to have all the power about what we're doing. And the thing that really frustrates me, that scares me, that makes me realize we're on the precipice is that this continuing push to vaccinate our children 
with medicine, with a new experimental medicine that obviously is creating questions. We got these professional athletes that are dropping dead left and right at a rate that is inexplicable by random, by random events. There's something that's happening it. Now, this is not proof that the vaccine is, but I can't think of another other suspect that uh, doesn't prove it, but it's at worst, at least worth asking the question. And, um, you know, let's go to cut number three, David. In case you guys don't believe me that the powers that be are not, not looking out for us. Um, menstruating cycles and how that is affected by vaccines. Yeah, though, well, the menstrual thing uh, is, is something that seems to be quite transient and, and temporary. That's the point. That's one of the points. We need to study it more. Anthony Fauci being interviewed by Brett Baer of Fox News about the effect on menstrual cycles of in women who receive the vaccine. And you hear Fauci there saying, well, it needs to be studied more. What? I'm sorry, what did you say? You are putting a euphemistic, I'm not even going to say this because people with the long knives are out to get me anyway, but you, you, you've you got a guy who's basically shutting down the country. I didn't shut down the country. Uh, I recommended to the president that we shut down the country. He's shutting down the country. Uh, I would like to use hydroxychloroquine. Oh, you're going to lose your medical license. Uh, you know what? Just the vaccine. We got these issues with the vaccine and we're going to Fauci like, hey, you told us we had to get this vaccine. You told I played the montage in the beginning. If you take the vaccine, you can't get it. It wasn't true. And now we're seeing these obvious side effects. Professional soccer players dropping dead left and right. The the cases of myocarditis going up from four per per million to twenty five thousand per million. We see issues with the menstruating cycles and Fauci has the unmitigated gall, the temerity to say it needs to be studied more. And they're still trying to force our kids who have no statistical, no realistic statistical chance of being harmed. Man, what is going on? This is insanity. Am I the only one? And then the people that we put in charge play cut number four. So we really want to to to, to base our treatment and uh, and to uh, affirm and to uh, support and empower these youth, not to limit their participation in activities and sports, and even uh, uh, limit their ability to get gender affirmation treatment in their state. Okay, so you were just listening to the uh, former Surgeon General uh, Rachel Levine. Uh, he was born into this world, Richard Levine, and then he. Uh, he uh, transgendered uh, to become Rachel Levine and then got appointed the Surgeon General and uh, also not a doctor, a nurse. Uh, no offense against nurses, but it's the Surgeon General. Now, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say that, generally speaking, if you are born a man or born a woman and you think you are the other gender, that something is not functioning properly. I don't mean it in a mean way, and I don't. I don't think that people should be treated without dignity and respect. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that that doesn't seem to me what God and nature intended. 
that if you're born a man, a physiologic man, and you feel like a woman or you're born a woman and you feel like a man, that is not what is intended. And there is an issue there. And listen, I am all for doing what we need to do to help these people. It's just the Hippocratic oath for physicians is do no harm. And it seems to me that when you take a child who is having gender dysphoria and you cut off their private parts, that that may not be helping the problem. And I have questions and I want to talk about it. And the fact that they're already doing this at major institutions and sort of skip the part where we had debate about it is terrifying me. And it's evil, in my opinion. And I'm sitting here worried about my medical boards that will attack me and threaten me and and you know threaten my license and have taken license away. Dr. Peter McCullough for talking about obvious truths are putting people like Rachel Levine in charge of the uh, as Surgeon General. You don't think that person has a political agenda? I mean, she's basically talking about gender affirming care. That is what the mutilation surgery is and giving hormone blockers, which by the way, if you give a prepubescent kid hormone blockers, you are permanently altering the, that person's development and you're changing it. And I, I have all sorts of uh, a video of people who have regretted their transgender that have posted online uh, crying and, and just beside themselves with grief over what has happened to them physically and our so-called medical boards are letting this happen. And then when people like Matt Walsh of Daily Wire and others are pointing out like, hey, do you know that major institutions like Vanderbilt and others are performing these transgender operations? The American Medical Association sends a letter to Merrick Garland uh, saying that they want um, these people prosecuted. Now, to be fair, when you read the letter, they use these euphemisms that our clinics are being called and threatened with bombs and all this kind of stuff. And this is the language that they use to sort of lend some credibility to what they're saying. But in the end, what they're saying is we want the DOJ to investigate anybody who's pointing out our evil doings here. Okay. Now, the case that I'm making, the case that I want to appeal to you guys is is you have to you have to support you have to demand patient centered free market healthcare okay because when you cede that power to these other entities they have other agendas both political and monetary that are not in your best interest and the only person who will look out for you in the way that you need to be looked out for is yourself and we have to create a medical system that empowers individuals to look out for their own well-being, like a new experimental medicine comes along. We don't need the government telling us that we have to take it or else. We need to be able to use our own minds and use our own assessment of the facts and data, not facts and data that are being censored from us or kept from us. And I'm sorry, you know, my wife and I were talking the other day about public speaking. And, you know, she we were talking about my – because my daughter is – uh a, uh, an amazing singer. She, we just went to the all state choir. She was one of four sophomores from the entire country to make this all state singing. And uh, she got two solos as a soprano one. <clears throat> so I'm very proud of her. She's amazing. 
And she's really great at getting up in front of people and singing, and she has an amazing talent. And so my wife and I got in this conversation about you know, being able to sing in front of people, act and be silly. I can't do that because I would feel like a fool acting or singing. I don't have that talent. But public speaking, I have no problem with. I remember uh, being at uh, some kind of political rally years ago where I spoke to two million people uh, out there on the mall. And uh, that was another time uh, when um, <clears throat> I became aware of media censorship. I'm on the mall and there was between one and a half and two million people on the mall. And of course, the media said, oh, there was only 75,000 people. It's utterly ridiculous. It's a totally peaceful protest. 20 minutes after the, the, the meeting, uh, everybody was gone from the mall. There wasn't so much as a gum wrapper on the ground. It was completely peaceful, completely, uh, uh organized and, and civil. Um, and anyway, the point is, I was able to speak in front of two million people. I had not a little, not even a little bit of of uh, concern. I wasn't worried about it. And the reason I told her, and this is sort of tongue in cheek, is that over my years of going through academia and through medicine, and and I've seen a lot of uh, uh, politicians. I've interacted with them in my efforts to try and promote a free market healthcare. I've really just kind of lost respect for most people. And so because of that um, cynicism that I've developed with age and, you know, sadly be let, you know, being let down by people uh, that are sinners and that are, you know, we all fall short, me included. Uh, I just don't really have this, this fear of public speaking anymore. And I've gotten to the point now where I want to share my opinion. I feel I've earned it. I've been in medicine for 30 years and, you know, I, I you know, this, I, I was talking about this the other day. Um, you know, I graduated at the top of my medical school class, and I bring it up a lot. And the reason I bring it up a lot is because I'm not an academically gifted guy. I had a major reading disability. Uh, I never really did that great in high school or college. Um, it wasn't until I got out of school and got really focused on medicine. I went back to grad school. I had to learn how to read and all this kind of stuff. And when I got into med school... I really bared down. I worked as hard as I possibly could, and I graduated fourth in my class, and I'm really proud of that. But I also recognize it means nothing. It means absolutely nothing. That gets you to the starting line. You go and you get your degree, you get your education. That gets you to the starting line of life. Now go play. Now show me what you can do in the game. And so many people think that their degree is everything, that once they get the degree, they don't have to – uh, prove themselves anymore. And it's utterly ridiculous. And it's usually people on the left who are trying to create this narrative that you can't have an opinion if you're not an expert. You can't be allowed to say what a woman is if you don't have a degree in biology. And so I like to say my bona fides to the people on the left, to the normal people out there. I know we don't care about where I graduate. And it doesn't really mean anything. People graduate at the top of their class all the time. And when they get out in the real world, they're abject failures. And then you get people who graduate at the bottom of their class, the way they get into the real world, they do fantastic. And the person that is talking to you right here uh, where I share my opinions is the regular guy. I give my academic bona fides just to let people know um, I have a, a grasp of the information. But the reality is, is I'm speaking here as a common sense kind of person. And I also want to share my own experience. Now, we're talking today about how the, you know, I call it big medicine, the, the powers that be the, you know, we can see it with the pharmaceutical companies and how much power they have, the ability 
to get with government and mandate that we use their medicine and that we don't use other medicines uh, and that anybody who goes against this um, dictum is is sort of cut out of polite society and threatened and attacked. Um, it's it's really quite frightening. And there is a practical side of this. The more the bureaucracy takes over healthcare, the less the doctor-patient relationship survives and the worse healthcare you get. And I see it all the time. I have people coming to me that have been my patients for a long time and they're getting to be Medicare age and they go to their Medicare providers and they're just not getting any care. And it's scary how many of them come back to me. And again, I don't take Medicare now, but I'll see if you're my patient and I've been treating you and you age out and become forced to get on Medicare, I still take care of these people. And you might say, what, you don't take Medicare? What's your deal? And it's like, because Medicare makes it so hard for me to care for my patients that it's not worth the effort. If I do a, a hip surgery on somebody and they need crutches, they're going to make me be on the phone for hours to try and get approved crutches. And you just can't run a business that way. And at some point I was like, I'm over it. I'm, the, I'm just, you know, I do a hand surgery on a Medicare patient and they won't approve the occupational therapy afterwards. And so my surgery turns out poor because the patient couldn't get in with the therapist, which is the most important part. And I just got sick of it. So I just don't deal with them because government run healthcare is horrible and they don't care about individuals. Uh, and they don't, there's nobody to complain to when you're mad at Medicare or Medicaid, who do you go to? It's just like being mad at the DMV. There is no complaint desk. They don't care. And since you don't have another entity to go to, you're trapped. And that is the situation that we're getting in with our health care. And it's gotten worse than that now. I just had a lady that had a very complicated problem with her knee. I've probably talked to her about her on this show before. She's from another state. She's allergic to the um, um, – she's allergic to one of the elements that's in her uh, knee replacement. And she's having just this horrible reaction. Her throat is swelling shut. Her hair is falling out. Um, and she was just miserable. And she went to the doctors in her state. And as so often happens with doctors in this increasingly socialized system that they have, they don't want to deal with people that are off the beaten path because they're complicated. They say to themselves, man, I'm going to, you know, if I end up dealing with this person, um, the negative results are going to be documented by the bean counters in the medical bureaucracy. And so I'm going to look like a worse doctor and that's going to ultimately affect how much I get paid. And so I don't want to treat people that have complicated problems. I want to keep doing the easy ones so that I keep getting good results so that my statistics look good. And then in the eyes of the bureaucracy, they'll consider me a good doctor. Also, when people have problems that are off the beaten path, you have to read, you know, God forbid, you have to figure stuff out. And the worst part um, or the best part in certain circumstances, if you're me, is the emotional part of it. You got a patient who's absolutely terrified and feels like the whole world is turning their back on them. And they call you at all times of the night and they text you and and they have irrational uh, feelings about things, which is normal. We all do when we're under stress. And then, you know, she's a great person in the sense that she'll be scared and she'll talk to me about things. She sends me articles about what's going on with her. Uh, she's worried I'm going to abandon her because other doctors have abandoned her. And there's just this whole 
what we call a doctor-patient relationship that has been generated for me and this person. And the thing that makes me sad is she got blackballed in her state because the one doctor kind of told the other doctors what, what, you know, she's a problem child and all this. And so nobody would take care of her. And she ended up finding me on Facebook because apparently my name is, is in a, a, a support group. And so she reached out to me anyway, took care of her. And this is right on the heels of another guy uh, that had needed a hip replacement that had a recent diagnosis within the last year of ALS, the Lou Gehrig's disease. So a very horrifying diagnosis and, and a, a death sentence uh, and a horrifying death. And uh, he also needed a hip replacement and he couldn't get any treatment out in his state. So he ended up having to come out here so that I could do it. And you see this deterioration in real life between the doctor-patient relationship and it's all going away because we are ceding our power to this government-run healthcare. And if we want to get the control over our body back, we're going to have to enforce and demand free market healthcare. I hope you guys enjoyed the show today. We're going to be talking more about free market healthcare and the horrors of socialized medicine in the future. Everybody have a great day. You're listening to Dr. Scott Barber on the Doctor's Lounge. You're listening to me on America's Web Radio. We will catch you guys next time. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.